Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the next installment of the East Asia Hotspots podcast. It's Richard Haddock here, welcoming a very special guest, Julia Lau, an independent scholar, tutor, and writer based in Phoenix, Arizona. A native of Singapore, she attended the National University of Singapore and Georgetown University and has graduate degrees in law, security studies, and government. She's lectured at Georgetown University, the Catholic University of America, and the McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, in international relations and comparative politics. Her current research interests include war memory in Southeast Asia and China and gender politics, and she's here to speak with us about pandemic politics in Southeast Asia. Julia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure. It's eight something in the morning in Phoenix, so good morning. But for you, it's coming to noon, I guess. And it's my very first one, so I'm very excited. And it's a topic close to my heart because I'm from Singapore. Yes, indeed. And also uh, for listeners out there, Julia's been a regular scholarly contributor to the Seeger Center for Asian Studies right here at George Washington University. So jumping into the discussion, first question I have is Southeast Asia comprises of numerous countries that have distinct regime types, sociocultural experiences and memories, and policy priorities. Which governments have had the most successful responses to the global pandemic in your view and why? And a follow-up, which countries are struggling to respond? Lastly, how reliable are the data coming out about virus-related figures? Let me start by saying first that these are all great questions, and, and these are great questions to get us started to know basically what the region is doing to respond to the crisis. So in my view, I think every government in the world has taken some missteps as well as positive steps in how they've handled this. It's maybe too early at this point for any country, except maybe New Zealand, to declare any sort of success as we know it in a conventional sense. But there are clear indications, I think, of what has worked to control the spread of the virus. And we see that in some of the Southeast Asian countries that we'll talk about. While others, uh, less so, I think, in Southeast Asia, have failed to exercise the right urgency in both policymaking and public health messaging and or, you know, enforcing rules that will save lives, right? So to me, it's it's not so much about regime type. You do see across the board in Southeast Asia a range of regime types. It's much more about how and whether the politicians and policymakers were able to make sound decisions, make relevant choices. It's also in some ways dependent on what the available 
country infrastructure was and what the public health capacity was prior to COVID striking the region. And whether or not the national leadership is receptive and humble enough to listen to and act on advice from public health experts within country as well as you know, globally. It's also not about traditional IR measurements of strength in terms of how rich or how strong, although having deep pockets does help, as we'll see later on. So to start, I think the ones that were probably the most effective initially were those who took steps quickly early on in the first quarter of 2020, as early as February and March, to get their citizens to wear masks, stay at home, wash hands, do all that. Generally, be careful of this new virus that at that point of time, you know, very few people knew too much about, right? So for instance, I was actually in Singapore physically in late February through mid-March. I took a plane via Singapore into Japan for a day on transit and then out back to Arizona, where I am right now. Everyone in Japan that I saw just about was wearing a mask already. So this was March 16th. In Singapore, by late February and early March, there were hand sanitizer bottles in public apartment uh, elevators for public use. There were signs in subway stations in the bathrooms telling people there's this new virus, please wash your hands, please do this and that very, very early. Coming back into the U.S., I landed in Los Angeles airport. And there were similar signs, which was good to see. But then coming back to Arizona, which is a very different state, there were no such indications till quite a bit later. Although the very next day, March 17th, was when some people started working from home. This was not across the board. So Southeast Asia, like other parts of Asia, suffered from SARS right in 2002 or three and four. Also, we've had various bouts of swine and bird flu coming from our other parts of Asia. Where we see regimes that have struggled both in and out of this region are in some ways the more liberal and open ones where initially maybe you know the leaders either chose not to decide or or said along the lines of we cannot impose you know restrictions on freedom of movement, freedom of action, and or left it to individuals to decide right would you wear a mask, would you self isolate would you stay at home if you're not feeling well? The countries I think who, that did well were the ones who didn't hesitate to say, you know, just to be safe, right? Let's let's everybody stay at home. If you're coughing or have a fever or have a, you know, have any flu-like symptoms, because at the time they still didn't know exactly what the virus did to your brain and other organs. Those countries that immediately did, you know, like a sort of more triage type of action were probably all those that didn't see a large spike in cases, at least initially. However, those that didn't impose quarantines or lockdowns or didn't close their borders to foreign visitors, even from visitors from countries or hotspots that were clearly producing the virus in large amounts, you know, I think those are the ones that struggled. So for instance, Singapore closed its borders to all foreign visitors from China as early as end of January 2020. Chinese visitors were barred from entry and then subsequently steps were taken to evacuate Singaporeans from Wuhan, China, right, which is that famous place now, which had a lockdown for so long. This was at a high cost to Singapore, right? Overnight, you know, if you do that across the board for foreign visitors, the country will lose tourism revenue, and this will trickle down on other sectors of the economy. So just for information, Chinese visitors made, made up 18% of all foreign visitors to Singapore last year, 2019. By the third week of March, 2020, 
Singapore closes borders to all short-term foreign visitors. And this is the day after the first two deaths from the COVID-19 virus in Singapore. So if you look at the region, countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand, which are all much bigger and also all have very robust tourism sectors, they all made similar steps, both to bar foreign visitors plus control the movement of domestic tourists. The two largest majority Muslim nation states are, of course, Malaysia and Indonesia. And by April and early May, one of the biggest and most sensitive issues was that Hari Raya uh, Puasa, we call it in Bahasa Melayu, which is the end of Ramadan, was coming up. And typically this is celebrated by visiting your family, going home to your home province or home state, sharing meals, inviting, you know, having open houses, inviting friends and family. Both countries made the step to tell its people, you know, please stay at home, do not visit, do not have big parties, stay wherever you are and don't travel. And this was a big sacrifice sort of culturally and religiously and emotionally for a lot of people. But everyone mostly followed that order, right? So if you will, each country was prepared to make a sacrifice uh, nationally and, and call upon its population to be disciplined about public health. And interestingly, as a region, I think almost all, practically all the countries managed to succeed in that. That's some great input. Thank you for a very comprehensive view of what's going on right now in Southeast Asia. And especially the, the timelines were quite interesting. And Singapore, one of the early responders to it, nearly 20%, you said, of tourism, 18% last year coming from China. So certainly having to make a call like that and the economic consequences just at the outset might have no doubt been on the minds of various policymakers and business leaders. So how is history and collective memory of the past, and you mentioned the SARS outbreak and the other bouts of flu, but also other elements of the past, such as military rule, particularly in Indonesia and other countries, how have memories of these pasts influenced government and societal responses in Southeast and East Asia during the pandemic? And how do you think the current pandemic will serve as a collective memory node in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I like this question very much. Um, it ties in so many different strands of research and theory. And my own research is on collective memory, but in the case of World War II. So this is a great question, but also a very difficult question. And I'll start with you know this idea of national trauma or the aftermath of this pandemic. Uh, we're still seeing the pandemic unfold uh, in countries like the US. It's still in the first wave, or you can debate whether the second wave has started. In Southeast Asia, we're starting to sort of see the tail end of the first wave. People are slowly opening up, but it'll definitely already, you know, we know from the numbers, be one of the more traumatic episodes across the region. So collective memory and, and what we call public trauma or grief or national trauma or grief can be both positive and negative. It can be used by national leaders in either a positive or negative way. So on the positive side, you can use a crisis like this to call upon your people to be resilient. So most of the Southeast Asian countries have chosen to do that. Like, please do a favor right, to your fellow citizen, to your, your older relative, to your parents and aunts and uncles. Please take care of the children. For the sake of our country, please bind together and sacrifice, right? You can also do it negatively by being more nationalistic. We saw that in some countries, not really in Southeast Asia, but, you know, if you choose to blame the virus on a particular region and or a particular actual place, right? Although in, in some ways, the, the scientists are now 
uncovering a lot of data that shows this is actually misplaced because we're seeing possibly at least two different strains of the virus and possibly infection coming from not just the Asian region, right? So I think if, if anything, this will definitely be a case study for a lot of people in across academic disciplines, including IR, including public health, definitely a national war memory, if you want to call it a war against COVID, although I think that's a wrong label to use. But definitely it's brought home the importance of sound public policy, uh, good governance. What is good governance in a crisis like this? What is good leadership at the national level and in larger countries at the state or provincial level? For once, everyone's paying attention to who is your health minister, right? Is this person qualified for the job? Is this person giving sound advice, is the messaging clear? So all, all of these factors putting all governments right under, under the spotlight. To your question about military rule, so at this point in, in all the 10 countries in Southeast Asia, arguably not a single one is technically under military rule. But yes, countries like Thailand, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Cambodia all have had sort of militant or military-led uh, administrations. Some still do. I would say if you're less democratic, there are certain weaknesses in the sense that if COVID hadn't happened and if we didn't see the extent of it roiling even democratic countries across the world, even if you're less democratic, it does not necessarily mean you cannot handle this crisis. And ironically, some of the more autocratic or authoritarian governments have been more successful at sort of locking down or forcing people to shelter in place. And it's maybe even too early to tell, right, whether... Regime type has a you know proper co- correlation with effectiveness of response. Culturally, the societies across this region vary greatly, but there's some I think commonalities. Uh, we've mentioned calling upon people to put society above self. Generally, they're all more communal than we would see, for instance, in Europe or in the Americas. Generally, there's a deference to authority and or to an appeal to sort of the national conscience, right? And these may have influenced these countries' responses. I think for SARS, this definitely scarred an entire generation of policymakers and public health officials. This happened in about an 18-year period ago. So in that time, all the countries that had to deal with SARS and suffered losses, so Singapore, for instance, lost 33 lives out of 238 cases during the SARS crisis. This was deeply mourned by the country. The current death toll from COVID is just 26 deaths. And I say just, it doesn't mean that they're you know, not individually important, but this is out of over 43,000 cases. So if you look at the percentage of you know, the deaths as, as a fraction of how many cases total, it shows how seriously the government has taken the crisis, how effective all the protocols that have been put in place are. And you see this, I think, across the board. I haven't had time to look at all of the SARS numbers, but in almost all countries in Southeast Asia that did experience SARS, the COVID death toll is either comparable or lower than the SARS death toll. The two viruses are very different, but all the offices, hospitals, and clinics that we see helping to deal with COVID now, for the most part, were places that had to deal with SARS. And all the protocols and and work procedures put in place back then. So for instance, I used to be in the Ministry of Defense in Singapore, and we already had by 2003 or 4 a 50-50 work plan type of thing where only half of the office was supposed to go in. You're not supposed to interact with your colleagues outside the office. And then, you know, you sort of alternate with the other team that goes in the next day or whatever. And we had a sort of plan, like, what if 50% of us get the virus? What will we do in that scenario? So all these structures and all the thinking was already done. So in a crisis like COVID, 
the countries that managed to put those things in place were not caught off guard, right, the way other countries might have been. I'm particularly interested in the implementation of that memory of those past experiences. So what you just mentioned about the thinking already taking place before in some countries during SARS and other outbreaks, causing creation of certain structures that are now being reintroduced or scaled up. And I personally certainly see that as a, certainly see that as a difference, one of the many, but one of the differences in the American response, for example, of how in my working experience, I haven't seen a lot of these structures having needed to be created before until now. And these questions that you're raising also. Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, one of the strengths of democracy is that you hear diverse voices. But sadly, in a crisis that moves very quickly like this, there's no time for debate almost, right? Not that you cannot debate, but the more time you spend trying to figure out what's the best solution, sometimes there's just not the time for it. So so these countries, in some ways, those that could, were very quickly already pulling together um, teams of policymakers from all across different ministries or departments, and they could then deal with it within a week or two, not months, right? So that, say, typically, you know, generally speaking, that would have saved a lot of lives. So we mentioned this a little bit in the previous response as well, but I'd be curious if you can go a little more into how you evaluate civil and military relations in government responses to the pandemic in Southeast Asia. And what are the public reactions to these issues? Do you see that there are countries that lean more strongly in one direction versus others? Just as one example, but in Indonesia, the Army General Donnie Monardo leads both the country's coronavirus task force and its disaster management agency, which I found that connection to be interesting and possibly worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So my answer may surprise you. I've actually spent some time in Indonesia, uh, in Georgia, where I learned Indonesian. But the TNI, or the Tentara Nacional Indonesia, which is the name for the military, is actually the best agency to deal with what's going on now in Indonesia given COVID because it is about the only organization that has such a reach across the entire country, right? It's a it's an archipelago. It's got, you know, more than 17,000 islands, many of which are very rural and or have no solid infrastructure in terms of roads or running water or sewage systems and all that. So manpower-wise and infrastructurally in terms of logistics at the provincial level down to the village level, no other agency in Indonesia has that strength and the manpower and the reach. It is not unusual in, in times of crisis and even countries like Singapore and Malaysia, which are known for having a fairly strong civil government, if you're a military man or woman intending to join politics, you've got to resign your military commission before you can run for office. It wasn't the case in Indonesia until more recently. Thailand has had a lot of experience with uh, military being in charge and military coups. And probably of all the cases, uh, I would say Thailand may be the most worrying, more so than Indonesia, because they've decided not just to bar foreigners from coming in to the country, but they've decided to declare a state of emergency as well. So most of the other countries have declared like a travel shutdown or a border shutdown, but have not labeled it a state of emergency. Thailand has chosen that label, which which comes with you know other 
connotations and may, maybe reminds people of you know past military coups. The current leader in Thailand is someone who who is a military general, so it's not unusual for military men to be in politics in Southeast Asia. But I think at this point, it's too early to say. I don't think the military has overreached in any country yet. Even where civilian leadership is very strong, in Singapore, for instance, we have national service. So to give two masks per person per household initially, we got all the national service soldiers who are aged, you know, eighteen and up to about twenty or twenty-one to pack and send out these masks. And these were the immediate sort of manpower resources that we had. And they got the job done and they got it done very quickly, I think overnight, if I'm not wrong. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And this sort of question to explain the whole, you know, why is a military guy in charge? It may have to do, and I'm not entirely sure, I need to do more research on it, but it may have to do with how in 2004, when the, you know, that massive tsunami hit on Boxing Day, the military, again, uh, both the Indonesian one and at the time the Singapore and, and American militaries, and I think the Australians as well, were helping out in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami. And in Aceh, in West Java and in Indonesia, again, that you know these were the only agencies that had the amphibious uh, vessels, the you know manpower, the expertise, the logistics to distribute food, for instance, to handle first aid, to have a uh, Medical evacuations were needed to move huge numbers of people and food and other things and supplies out of danger zones. And so maybe it evolved from there where they said, well, now, and I know for sure that all countries that were affected by the tsunami in Asia really then looked into emergency preparedness, although it's a different kind of natural disaster. It's not a pandemic. You know, once you, like you said just now, like once you put in place these systems or once you put in place and you've gone through the thinking of how do you handle any crisis, right? Then uh, the wonderful thing in some ways about a military is you can issue orders and the job gets done. And even in the States, I suppose, right? I'm not sure if, if there have been any sort of serious military efforts to help logistically. But, you know, if it should come to that, the military is typically one of the most reliable institutions that you can have. Interesting. For the next issue, we we covered it briefly, but it's on the economic trade and business side of how this pandemic is playing out in Southeast Asia, seeing that some countries in the region are preparing to implement various reopening plans this summer, in part because of concerns of the impact on tourism and economic activity. How are these business concerns and economic concerns playing out in the pandemic responses? And are countries in Southeast Asia ready to reopen? The quick answer to the last question in that series is yes and no. Uh, They are definitely already talking about how and how quickly to reopen. So immediately, I guess, you know, it would be to say, Definitely all the economies have suffered. Singapore, for instance, has projected for now a negative 5 to 7% GDP for this year. Other countries like Indonesia, Malaysia have similar projections. Some are slightly more optimistic, some are not, but everybody's going to have a deficit. The world, you know, technically is already in recession. The economic outlook is not great, right? So then the next question is, you know, what do you do with that? So in Singapore, we've frozen civil service bonuses. Uh, these are typically given out middle of the year and end of the year, and, and senior civil servants have their pay and bonuses pegged to how well the economy is performing. So they're cutting costs right by freezing the, the salaries and giving the senior ones a pay cut. So there's no good news in that sense. However, 
tourism is something that countries like Thailand, Bali, and Indonesia, definitely uh, Malaysia, also Singapore, but they haven't announced concrete plans in terms of actual dates. They're still trying to figure out, okay, if we have a so-called green lane arrangement, we've heard that term. So Indonesia, for instance, like Bali, I know is discussing with Australia and New Zealand, who are among their biggest markets for tourists, Australia for sure, because it's so close to Bali. These two countries also are handling the crisis and the virus very well, despite the signs that there might be a second wave coming in Australia. And everyone is sort of impatient, right, to see at least some of the flow of tourists come back because that has a downstream effect on you know many, many other sectors. You know, your hotels, your your service staff, your money exchange people, your taxi drivers, all of it, right? Everyone will get affected. Then bilaterally, countries like Singapore and Malaysia, for instance, so they're separated by a small strait of water. They are talking now about how, you know, how do we lift restrictions so that people who need to commute daily into Singapore. We have students who do that, who live in Johor State is the one that's closest to Singapore. Students, workers, you know, family members uh, used to commute daily, right, on a bus or in a car into Singapore to work or study for the day and then take the bus or the car back into Malaysia in the evening. How do you resume that, right, without jeopardizing public health? So it's almost like if you were to think of it as, here we talk about, are you going to have a pod with another household. It's almost like that discussion. It's just now it's country to country. Then further afield, uh, Singapore is discussing with China, for instance, how do we have a green lane arrangement or expedited travel for business travelers, for officials? And I know Japan is starting, this is not Southeast Asia, but Japan and China are starting that kind of talk. So basically the main idea is nobody can afford to wait too much longer to start trade exchanges and go back to people to people and familial visits. The other question then is if we open within Southeast Asia or if we open to Northeast Asia, right? what do we have to do when we talk about Europe and the US, which are now the two zones, if you will, and also Latin America, which is coming up and potentially Africa and South Asia, right? the numbers of cases in all these regions are growing exponentially. So a big policy decision will be, do we impose a 14-day quarantine on incoming visitors from those regions? Because these are also then the largest spenders who are, you know, if they come in for tourism next to the Chinese tourists and Japanese tourists, right? Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam, we've not talked about too much. As a whole, these tend to be less developed economically. I haven't seen, I'm assuming they're hurting disproportionately partly because they also depended greatly on Chinese tourists for income. However, ironically, or maybe you know, because they're less developed and maybe more isolated, they actually have the best numbers in terms of actual number of cases of COVID. Very few deaths, if at all. You know, maybe the Chinese will allow their people to start traveling to these four countries first, right, before they go to the rest of ASEAN. And then... Sort of domestically, there's one thing that the bigger countries can do. So like Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia in, in particular. Uh, those with a big enough domestic population that can kickstart local tourism will recover slightly because they're now allowing more movement. Malaysia has something called a movement control order, but over time that will you know go away. It's, it's going to, I think, last till end of August, but after that, I think they'll lift it. However, uh, there's no way that domestic travel can replace or completely fill the void left by foreign tourism. Um, Singapore, for instance, if we don't allow foreign tourists to come in, 
you will lose about 90% of your revenue, like to hotels and other things, uh, tourist attractions. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah, actually, the one other policy issue that's been of talk regarding reopening policies is the idea of travel bubbles, too. That's right. Yeah. Do you know of if there are any countries in Southeast Asia either already part of the travel bubble or in discussion to be included with those of other countries? I believe New Zealand and some other countries were already setting up certain travel bubbles. I might be overtaken by the news because every, every day the news changes very quickly. I don't think I've seen actually concrete dates. I know for sure, for sure, Bali has sort of announced that it will very soon try to reopen but I don't think I've seen anything as definite as Greece, for instance, in Europe, right, which declared on July 1st, we're open for business for uh, European tourists. Southeast Asia as a region hasn't reached that point, whereas the EU has, has sort of basically said, if you're from the EU, we're allowing people to come in and out and travel. I would expect places like Bali, Thailand, because it has so many beach resorts and other things, these two Places will probably be the first. Uh, Malaysia has a lot of tourism sites and the travel bubbles will probably start happening maybe in the next, I don't know, two to three months. Then, the, you know, the critical period for tourism in Asia is winter time in, in Europe, right? So if we don't manage to catch, you know, the Thanksgiving and Christmas crowd, then this year will really be a washout. So I, I'm assuming even though I haven't seen actual dates, that definitely by the fall, we'll have to start seeing people open up, whether or not they can control any resurgence of the virus. Because the big question is if and when there'll be a second wave, right? Do we have to shut down again? And I think the predominant feeling is we'll try to avoid a lockdown because we've seen how terrible it is economically. You know, so now Singapore, for instance, has a, a new program where they'll certify a hotel for being clean enough. One of the ways to draw tourists back is to assure them, right, wherever you're staying, it's a clean hotel, it's been sanitized. You know, every time you use a room, there's no trace of the person that was in that room prior to you. So they've made certain promises, like within 24 hours of someone checking out, nobody new will come into that room. So I think if across the board, it, it lifts up sanitization standards. You know, that can only help the industry because uh, going forward, you know, people are going to think, where do I want to go now that travel is also going to be harder and more expensive? Probably they'll really be careful about where they stay and how long they stay and how they fly there or not. So I don't know. I don't know if the whole of Southeast Asia will be its own bubble, but it definitely has no choice but to open up to other regions of the world. Another issue that I wanted to hear your take on is how are pressing social issues, particularly regarding gender and race issues in Southeast Asia, and how would you evaluate government and society leadership and pandemic responses with regards to these social issues as well? The first thing to say would be, I think it's more noticeable on the gender issue compared to the race issue, especially in Southeast Asia. I've not read too many indications that there's a deep racial disparity in, in terms of who suffers from COVID and or who recovers from it and or the economic impact, um, there are probably going to be signs that there is some racial disparity, but I would guess that it is not going to be to the extent that we see, for instance, um, in, in America. For gender, however, across the world, I think there's been a disproportionate negative impact on, on girls and women, generally speaking, right? Everybody has suffered, male or female, and other groups as well. So 
there's been some think pieces about gender and national leadership. It's maybe not so much about gender when it comes to national leadership on COVID. It's more about whether the, the national leader has been humble, has been quick to decide or agile in decision making. This arguably is genderless, right, or independent of what a person is. It's true. Well, we've heard about Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Angela Merkel in Germany, and Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen. They have all done a good job in handling COVID country-wise. There are some male leaders in various continents, uh, whom I shall not name, who have blustered or bungled, refused to wear a mask or you know, denied the extent of the problem. And this was tough to see in the initial and middle phases of the pandemic, if, if we call it that, right? We're probably still smack in the middle of the first wave. These countries then have had to play catch up. And, and it's partly because of that kind of response initially that we are seeing these explosions of cases. But I, again, I don't think it's gender you know, as, a, as a thing, right, doing the work. However, in the workplace, which is now your home, if you can work from home, we see definitely not just anecdotally that across the board, women in the world, not just Southeast Asia, if you're a working professional woman, uh, if you have children, you work your, your job if you're still working full time from home. But then on top of that, you have what we call the second shift, taking care of the kids, cooking for the family. Some women have lost their job, so then now they're restricted to their homes if they have a stay-at-home order. This becomes then their only shift. Or if you're a single parent, a single mom with two jobs, then you come home and there's a third shift. Um, so the idea being you know, mothers worldwide. And again, there are men who cook, there are fathers who cook, but by and large, it's the moms doing the, the work at home. Even in countries with more gender equality, even in more democratic countries or more sort of culturally you know, balanced countries in terms of the gender divide, are more likely to be responsible. Women, women are more likely to be held responsible or see themselves as responsible for whether their children logs in online to go to school every day, whether or not their kids are doing well uh, sort of psychologically and mentally compared to fathers. And this is if the fathers are still living in the same household. The gender differences also expose sort of cultural and economic things that we've sort of all known about. It's a bit stark, if not depressing. So for instance, I know for sure in Singapore, the abuse of women and girls has gone up. Calls to domestic violence hotlines have increased. Social workers are concerned because boys and girls who may be suffering from child abuse at home are no longer coming physically to school. Although in Singapore now, all the kids are back at school. Back when it was shelter in place, it was harder for a teacher or a social worker to figure out if something wrong was going on because they couldn't see the child physically. So the bigger sort of tsunami, I guess, will be what happens when all this is over and done with. There'll be serious mental health and other challenges awaiting us right, for analysis. We don't know at this point, I think, how big the problem is, although we're starting to see signs of it. And then in the poorer countries, so if you if you have a country that has gender inequality in terms of access to education, that's probably going to be one of the biggest things that will have an impact more than one or two generations down the line. Girls already are less likely to go to school in a poorer country, even before the virus struck, right? But chances are all girls from lower income households may have to be forced to go to work instead of go to school now. And this will set everybody back at least a generation or two. This is probably the saddest question in the law. Wow, yeah, that's very stark. Stark to hear, very sobering to hear. Do you see that there are organizations, nonprofits, civil society, or government responses to address that inequality, either now or plans to do so in the future? 
Yeah, I, I may have been a bit too pessimistic, but you brought up a great point, uh, which reminds me that charities and NGOs are doing their best. So a wonderful thing, I think, is, you know, being stuck at home has made a lot of people really think about what is community and how can they help, right? And given them maybe more time, in some cases, to volunteer. So I know that, at least in my own circle, there are people talking about raising funds and who have already volunteered their time or energies to helping to solve some of these problems. So in Singapore, there was one scheme where they were asking for donations of used laptops, and they were refurbishing these laptops to give to children of poorer households who, who didn't have good access because everybody needed to log in to go to school. Now the Singapore government has announced that every child of school-going age will get a free laptop, basically, and be guaranteed internet access, even if their family cannot pay for it. So that's a wonderful thing. That's government stepping in. NGOs, I know that sort of people manning hotlines for, and this is not just domestic abuse, but suicide hotlines, other, you know, like Good Samaritans and all that, all, all these NGOs and charities have successfully fundraised. In Singapore, apparently, there was twice the amount of fundraising for the equivalent period year on year this year. Those who could afford to basically donated more money to these different causes. So that's good to see. I'm assuming an equivalent situation is unfolding in Malaysia and Thailand and Indonesia. I'm hoping that that's the case. So there is, yes, a, a bit of a silver lining. Well, that's encouraging. And certain policy decisions might be good models elsewhere in the world, such as guaranteeing internet access, for instance, and making sure that students might have access to that too in, in the future. So to bring it to a, a global context before we wrap up, how are foreign policy priorities and globalization realities influencing pandemic responses in Southeast and East Asia? How do you evaluate on the whole government responses? And what do you see as a successful recipe for a response? And this is kind of a summation of what we've uh, discussed thus far, but especially with that globalization element, we talked about how Southeast Asia really has to open up to uh, other countries for travel, tourism, economics, and also the necessity of the internet for virtual economic activity or education. So to wrap us all up here, how do you see globalization and foreign policies influencing these responses? That's a terrific question. I think an entire IR course can be taught on that. I would say so it slightly overlaps with some of the questions we've seen, but um, it's less, I think, about regime type. It's more about the strength of a country's infrastructure, the capacity of the country to adapt and pivot, really, in a crisis like this. You do see you know, the phrase whole of government, but I think prior to this crisis, you never had to see it being implemented in this way. So the better able you are as a country to you know, get your departments working across the board together to have a unified messaging about the virus, to have clear communications, uh, to have effective responses, you know, at all levels, right? So we've seen it hit the economy, education, sort of societal, cultural issues like gender, psychological issues like trauma, abuse, sort of this sense of isolation that everyone has had to go through because of lockdown or, or shelter in place. This doesn't really jive with what we traditionally see as IR, which is, you know, what is your regime type or how authoritarian or autocratic are you? That helps less in terms of analyzing a response to a pandemic like this. So maybe, you know, uh, this is a sort of shout out to all my friends uh, from grad school, right? Maybe the time has come for IR theorists to come up with a proper theory. Uh, there have been some attempts at it, but there's not been a real theory about 
the power or the ability of small and medium powers or states to handle crises like pandemics, right? In IR, there's a there's a sort of reification of concepts like hegemony and the status of superpowers. But um, in this crisis, we've actually seen that it, it's the small and medium state that may be more it may have more capacity for tenacity or resilience, definitely for the ability to pivot quickly to handle the repercussions of COVID-19. And they do this in a way that the larger states cannot match, right? Whether or not it's political willpower and or culture and or the actual person leading the country. And again, this is a broad generalization, right? But there may be something here for a more substantial IR theory to emerge. You know, as we see the repercussions play out in the next year or more, maybe this will come in time. I'll skip the gender part of it because I think we've talked about it some already. But I think focus and single-mindedness are also important in handling a crisis. Not to lose attention right before the crisis is over is definitely not over. It will be with us a long time. People talk about the vaccine, but even with the vaccine, you know, it's going to be at least one to three years before the whole world can get it. And then the question is, how long will the vaccine last? Humility, I think, is important in leadership. Are you willing to kill sacred cows? Are you nimble in your response? Are you willing to challenge your own preset policy responses in the face of changing information? And I think with COVID, the scientists are still trying to figure out exactly how it's killing people, right? There's a lot of changing information in that sense. I guess the last thing, back to the collective memory uh, idea, I think Southeast Asia has done actually proportionately okay. So in terms of world population and COVID cases, it actually matches almost perfectly. We have about 8.5% of the world's population and we have about 8.5% of the world's cases, which is interesting. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just did that check yesterday with all the data. Interesting. Actually, kind of along those same lines, uh, what kind of resources might you suggest for those of us out here who want to learn more, research and understand a pandemic politics in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So for a good sort of broad global overview, if you're a numbers person, uh, you can now actually just go into Google, type in the search bar, COVID cases or COVID you know, toll or statistics, name of the country. Uh, it will give you a breakdown of the total number of confirmed cases, the death toll, number of recoveries, if available. This tends to be, the last category tends to be elusive in some countries. And some some of the statistics, I'm not sure where they get all the data from. So to be very safe, I would corroborate these with national news. And then for me, um, I like to look at different news sites. So the, the big American newspapers, but also Asian papers like South China Morning Post, which sometimes has very good summary data on Asia and commentary. For Singapore, the Straits Times is the main English language newspaper. They have a, a graphics chart um, that is very specific, has a lot of graphics, very easy to understand numbers. For individual countries like Indonesia, for English readers, you would go to the Jakarta Post, which is the main English newspaper. They also have Indonesian papers, of course. And if you read Bahasa, there's probably going to be more detail sort of on cultural and other maybe societal issues and factors in the, in the wake of COVID that you may or may not see in the English press. Malaysia also has good newspapers in both English and their vernacular. Thais have the Bangkok Post, which is the biggest English newspaper. So there's no shortage of information. Uh, Within the U.S., there's think tanks like CSIS uh, in Washington, D.C., and they follow Johns Hopkins University's data, and they have a COVID tracker. The World Health Organization actually also has a global 
breakdown. And that's more of a public health type of categorization of data. But that's also pretty useful for double checking statistics. So the to me, you know, I'm a I'm a qualitative person, but uh, the numbers tell you that much, right? But you have to sort of, to me, I would say, you know, see the numbers, but then go into each country and look at the context, or go into each region and try and understand it from that point of view as well. And that, you know, that should get you there, right? Definitely. Wow. Well, thank you so much for a, a very comprehensive overview about what's going on in Southeast Asia, how our countries responding, and what might uh, the future portend. So thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc at gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh,